You ready? I'm ready. Remember to speak. See, let's see, like, like an inch away from the mic. Okay. Good. Good day, and welcome to the Climate Change Therapy Podcast, a product of BlockRadius.net, your most trusted online media outlet for urban planning and unrelated topics. I'm your host, Hank Felsman. Today is June sixteenth, two thousand nineteen, and we have with us today a very special guest. I've been trying to get him on the pod for years and years, actually, by now. Transportation planning guru, Mike Larson. Good to be here. We'll we'll get to you in a sec, Mike. (laughs) Wait your turn. turn. (laughs) But first, if this is your first time listening, this is Climate Change Therapy, the podcast where we force ourselves to talk about the difficult, socially taboo subject of climate change. That topic you never want to bring up with your friends or think about as you drive to work, Book a flight to Paris. Salivate as you open your mouth and bring a juicy cheeseburger to your lips. One of the most difficult subjects to talk about with others in our everyday lives. And yet, perhaps the most important subject to discuss. Because if no one talks about it, nothing gets done. And the more we talk about it, the more noise we make, the more pressure we put on politicians and and company to shift their perception of the categorical imperative from the profit motive to the responsibility to take care of the earth, to clean up after ourselves, like adults, like an adult, matured, matured species. Okay, before I bring out today's guest, uh, one more uh, bit of housekeeping to do. Let's take a quick minute to thank our sponsor, the Plus One Perpetual Motion Pendulum Machine. A 100% clean energy generating machine that can be used night and day, no matter the degree of wind. A giant pendulum that oscillates endlessly as long as you keep pushing it. Just requires one person to keep pushing it and it'll, uh, it'll motion perpetually. Comes complete with swing set and life-size crash dummy. And you guessed it, our longtime sponsor Roland Cases, the most rocking suitcases on wheels. Forget carrying your suitcase like an anti-Diluvian blowhard. Wheel it like a man of the present day. Roland Cases. Whether you're moving to the Andaman Islands or you're just spending the night, passed out on your stoop. Roland Cases are the suitcases on wheels for you and your life's journey. Roland Cases. Okay, and with that, we welcome today's guest, Mike Larson. Mike, let me remind you, right out of the gate, speak into the mic. We've had some issues with this in the past, as our longtime loyal listeners know well and good. Uh, Mike, how are you today? I, I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you, actually. I'll be a good host. Mike was a, a, a former student of mine at the, at the University of uh, Pennsylvania in the grad program. We, 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 t- we did a, an energy class together. You know, we, we, we talked climate change before. We had our own climate change therapy, but now... Mike, what are you doing now? Uh, you want to introduce yourself to the to the good uh, good listeners we have. All right, it's good to be here. Right now, I live in New York City and I work for New York City Transit, which is part of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. Uh, I do capital projects for the subway system. All right, and we're happy to have you here in Philadelphia. Um, we have our own subway system here. I heard. Um, yeah, for for people that may have never uh, ridden the the MTA before, um, <laughs> how would you how would you uh, compare um, 
the New York City transit system to the Philadelphia transit system? Well, for one, we're quite a bit larger. Uh, we have more ridership and more stations. Okay. Happy for that answer. I've heard good things about New York City subway. We do uh, our best. Never read it. I've never <laughs> ridden it before, but that's not true. I wrote it yesterday. Um, so, Mike, I want to start with with a, uh, a question that I, I like to begin every podcast with. Um, it's about how do we talk about climate change amongst friends? Um, at your job, you're in, in planning, transportation planning, New York City. Um, they do a, a lot of um, climate change uh, projects, say. Uh, how do you talk about it at work, and how do you talk about it with your friends? Well, one's easier than the other. Uh, so for so for work, we do a lot of in sort of the legacy of Superstorm Sandy, which really drove home the need to deal with flooding for transportation assets. We're working to make a large part of our infrastructure more resilient uh, to be able to withstand flooding to our primary goal is something called slosh to two, which stands for surface land oversurge from hurricanes. And then uh, two is a certain level of that. And then we add three feet of extra elevation on top. Uh, and that accounts for wave action and tidal action and storm surge. And so hopefully by protecting our assets to that standard, uh, they're more resilient the next time we get hit with something or even as sea level continues to rise. Cause you know, New York city is basically on a bunch of islands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've had guests on here before and I asked them how they talk about climate change at work and they say they don't, you do. So you are a, a expert. Um, relatively in, 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 in our book here. If that's the comparison we're making, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still a very hot-button topic. There are people I work with who don't necessarily believe the same thing, uh, and that can have effects on policy and targeted investments. Uh, but by far and large, the people at the top seem to have made it a priority to do this. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been lucky to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you mentioned Hurricane Sandy. I remember I was I was living in New York during Sandy, and they had closed the the G train to, to Queens was closed. Um, the L, of course, and the L, uh, they were talking about shutting it down for a while um, due to Sandy damage. Is that what's? This? Can you give an update on that? Are you able to speak on this? <laughs> Uh, or is this is this uh, classified information? It, it's not classified. It's the train is very clearly still running on twenty minute headways all weekend. We found a way to do the work without a complete shutdown, which I think is better for all riders in both Brooklyn and Manhattan. We're still going to protect it to the same standard. We're taking a rigorous approach based off of best practices, uh, global over and implementing it as fast as we can in the tunnels underneath the East River. So it's not going to close down? It has periodic one-track closures during certain nights and weekends. 
but we have okay. the other track that we continue to run service on. And of course, since we have trains going both directions, uh, it's a little less infrequent because one train has to clear the tunnel before the next train can enter. And it's sort of a, a, a choreographed ballet to have trains teed up and lined up, ready to enter the tunnel the moment one leaves and running sort of as shuttles and back and forth. Hmm. I see. And most of the damage is done with the, is with the tunnel under the, the East River, right? Of course. Yeah. Right. So, so my yeah. question is, what is stopping service for for to being on the Manhattan side? You run the Eighth Avenue to First Avenue, and then in the Brooklyn side, you can run the Bedford L, you know, out to Canarsie or, or whatever it is out there, and then you just kind of up a ferry service to transfer from the First Avenue to Bedford L. I don't, I'm not a transportation guru. I'm just an intuitive person. So, so what, terminate, what's you're asking if you terminated sort of both segments. So yep. First Avenue to 8th Avenue on one side and then from uh, Bedford Avenue out on... Yeah. Yep, so you just closed the, the tunnel that the subway goes through and you replace it with a, like a ferry shuttle. Uh, obviously, it's a lot more inconvenience to close the shuttle uh, or to, sorry, to close the tunnel completely and rely on a ferry service. That's another transfer. Uh, and it's, we believe it's not preferable for our riders to do so. And so we're really trying to find a way, and we did, to fix what yeah. needs to be fixed without going with a complete shutdown. That's good. No, and, and I like, like what you did because people were worrying about the whole ripple effects on the real estate market and what what's that going to do to Williamsburg. Um, people don't like, drastic change is always you know there's uncertainty is the scariest part as we as we'll we know with climate change as well. yes um okay so while i while we have where we're on the subject of new york city uh transportation i wanted to ask you about congestion pricing right the new uh, christmas toy new april fool's toy uh sorry that uh um governor cuomo signed in, in, into passing uh Congestion pricing in New York City, what can you tell us on this, Mike? It's going to be an integral part of funding our next capital program. And that's going to run from 2020 to 2024. And it's going to see some significant investments across both the MTA as a whole and all of its agencies. And then within New York City Transit, which is specifically subway system and bus system. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so congestion pricing schemes... Uh, they they vary from city to city across the world, right? So, uh, is New York City's scheme is it kind of a, a toll to enter the city? Is it is it just kind of during peak demand? Does the, the does the price vary at all during the day? Um, where is the the zone that's going to be charged? Is is Uber and Lyft exempt or electric cars exempt? What are some of the details of this of the scheme? So starting with the zone that would face the charges is really anything in what you consider the commercial business district. Uh, so that's anything they're planning for south of uh, Central Park. Okay. Yeah. And as you mentioned, there are a wide variety of implementing implementations that has been done in London and Sweden and and even I think Singapore, where you've seen these government bodies rely on either tolling, 
cameras in central business districts, um, registering cars before they go in, and really anything's on the table right now in New York mm. City Transit. They're still negotiating the details of it. Yeah, really what what has occurred is they've tasked Bridges and Tunnels, which is a sub-agency within the MTA uh, that primarily operates the tunnels and bridges going over the rivers and under the rivers in New York City. Mm-hmm. And they've tasked them with sort of coming up with a way to implement and they're working with the committee that's being established uh, to figure out what the tolls will be, how they'll be implemented, if it will be a flat toll or it will fluctuate based off of demand or be tied to time. So it'd be cheaper to go in at night versus in during rush hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really still being worked out. Gotcha. Is, is there any chance that they can't, come to an agreement on what the details of this is and we'll never we don't see congestion pricing in new york in 2021 i think that they'll agree because everyone who's going to be on the committee is going to be very pro congestion taxing i think it's Mm -hmm. possible that congestion pricing don't say taxing it's a dirty word (laughs) fair point uh i i think it's possible that you could see some level of lawsuit that might delay um there a big issue right now is who gets exemptions from it and everyone's lobbying for an exemption right now. And it's up to that committee, which is still being established to really determine which ones of those can go forward. So obviously an ambulance isn't going to pay a fire truck. Isn't going to pay. Um, there's talk about, uh, transit for seniors, uh, not having to pay. Mm-hmm. like paratransit services and taxis it's still up in the air right. the taxis and ubers had sort of before this law was passed a surcharge already added to them mm. of a couple a little bit more than a dollar per right. ride that um, a, that's a whole nother story that's an interesting yes. choice um yeah because that doesn't necessarily discourage people from owning cars when the taxis are more expensive now i, I had to take a taxi uh, a few weeks ago from LaGuardia to, to Penn Station, I, I uh, had a very late flight that that arrived and our driver was, was telling us about that charge, but it, it was basically just levied right onto the rider. Yeah, it's flat. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if you're going to just raise the price of taxis and Ubers, that doesn't discourage private car ownership. That actually makes it more economical. So, Definitely. so congestion pricing is, is important to, to kind of combat that phenomenon. Yes. Um, cool. So Mike, you, you had sent me a couple of articles, uh, yeah. over, over the weekend. Um, I, f- I found fat fascinating and really they bring up great, um, not just, uh, questions about environmentalism, but, but phil- philosophical questions about personal responsibility and, and just, just internal ethical dilemmas, all that stuff. Mike, do you want to kind of summarize those articles they're kind of about about the same topic so just um do you want to do you want to just summarize those and then we can kind of dive into the yeah so drama both of them them from the new york times and the first one was by andy newman and it was called if seeing the world helps ruin it should we stay home um dealing with plane boat and car travel in the age of global warming and traveling and as you know as a recent traveler out of LaGuardia, 
it's easier than ever to get on a plane and fly. And it's easier to see the world and easier to really go anywhere. The mobility options at a national and international level are basically endless now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I flew to China and back for a week. Just spent yeah, a week there. just a week, yeah. 500 bucks, my rent for yeah. a month. I just went to China and back. I went around the world. Yeah, that's incredible. But that comes at a cost. $500? It's significantly <laughs> more than what the cost to you is monetarily. Oh, expand. Expand upon that is that every flight you take is releasing CO2 and other gases from burning of the jet fuel. Yeah. Uh, and for many people, especially those living in urban, dense areas who might not own cars, who might already rely on taking the subway to work because it, they don't have a car, flying is their biggest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, bigger than eating steak. Much bigger than eating steak, okay, I would okay, say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's absolutely incredible. And then on yeah. top of that, I was reading a study today uh, that sort of did a survey of existing literature, and people in urban areas are also much more likely to travel internationally than people living in uh, sort of suburban or peri-urban regions or rural. Right. You know, the more dense place you live, the more you travel. Well, the more money you make. Yeah. Not, I mean, not necessarily. It has to do with the ease of travel. Like you live close to an airport. Right. Okay. Easy to get on that plane. And, That's and true. of course, you hit on a valid point that urban areas tend to have, you know, higher Higher median incomes. That's true. Yeah. Excess income. Yeah. I think another important caveat here, just to clarify for, for our listeners is that what makes airline travel, um, uniquely an important kind of moral dilemma here is that cars, the idea is you can electrify them and that you can power electricity with maybe a hundred percent, clean energy that could that's a a a goal right we can yeah we can argue about how realistic that is but that is a possibility theoretically airplanes are a lot harder to electrify they run on fossil fuels i don't know even if it's biofuels it's still you're putting carbon into the atmosphere yeah so the question with airlines is that you know if we become really strict about carbon emissions we could see a future where there's significantly less air travel because we don't know how to electrify airplanes. And now one of the articles you sent had one of the spokesperson for the aviation industry was explaining how um, planes have become um, far more fuel efficient than they were in, in 1990 say, and that they have plans to be more fuel efficient in 2050. So this is a concern that they are looking at. But nonetheless, you know, that fuel efficiency is, is just, you know, in essence, making flights cheaper and, and creating, um, uh, allowing more flights. <laughs> yeah, isn't that ironic? <laughs> that's, that's Jevon's paradox right there, right? That's induced demand completely to, you know, to a T. Um, so the, the question you're asking, and then there are carbon offsets. You had, you had also, the, those were mentioned in the article yes. where like, where, wealthy people that can afford it they can say yeah my my flight my round trip to china is 500 bucks but you know what 
like that's costing the environment let's put a price on it another $300 or something. Mm -hmm. So here's $300 to solar panel research or whatnot, you know, for example. Um, that's another thing that is being purported. Um, but the, the philosophical dilemma here is, is it ethical to fly? That's what you're essentially asking, right? Is yeah, correct? giving everything that we know, is it ethical to get on that airplane for that vacation for a week? You know, yeah. like the article says that a 2,500 mile flight melts 32 square feet of Arctic summer ice cover. 32 square feet. That's eight foot by four feet. Yeah. It's like they, they say in here, it's the size of a pickup truck. Yeah. Yeah. Flying from Los Angeles to New York. Yeah. I mean, where, where do you stand on this ethical issue? I mean, in terms of... You're, in, you're flying to Paris, aren't you, in a couple uh, weeks? <laughs> I'm flying to Rome. Rome, sorry. Yeah. yeah. It makes me a little bit of a hypocrite. But, yeah, we should definitely be trying to limit our flights if it's the largest uh, source of emissions yeah. for me in a given year. Is definitely flying. I don't have a car. I take the subway everywhere. I work yeah. for the subway. I got to take the subway. Yeah, so how do you grapple with it? Like, do you see a, a res response? Do you think these articles will affect the way you travel moving forward after this Rome trip? I think that they will affect my awareness and sort of consciousness about my travel choice, yeah. where I choose to go and how I choose to get there. You know, I take the train between here and New York, here mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, and that's more efficient. Yeah. You know, and trains can be electrified. Trains can. In fact, the one I take is electrified. <laughs> yeah. The, really? Totally? Completely electrified? Yeah. The Amtrak Northeast Quarter is completely electrified from Washington, D.C. to Boston. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I had two thoughts about this because yeah. I'm someone that I love to travel. Yeah. I, I, I don't spend money on a, a ton of, ton of stuff but when i do it's usually airline tickets mm -hmm. um here's how here's how i kind of see it um and i've i have made other sacrifices like i i try not to eat beef for example mm -hmm. um for you know land use and yeah. co2 emission considerations but the way i see it is i fly maybe two to four times a year i would say um maybe eight if you count round trips, I suppose. Yeah. At, at most. And where are you flying? Yeah, I'm flying to other countries maybe, or I, it, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh -huh. But I, but yeah, I fly. But there are people that do fly like every week. Yes. And there are corporations that fly every day. Yes. Right? Like the we, I, we learned in, in our studio class that, the flowers grown in Bogota, Colombia get flown up to Philadelphia like every morning or something to be sold. So global markets, freight flight, you know, corporation funded freight flight. That is a much larger problem than, um, you know, than flying a handful of times per year. Now, I, it is a contribution on my end. 
but that's that's one way to look at it. It's it's like you know why do I have to um, you know why do I have to buy like solar panels on on my roof when it's really like the bigger buildings are are you know are, the heating and cooling in the bigger buildings is like the problem. Yeah, you know? the supply chains. <laughs> um. So that's one way I, I, I justify it, you know. Another way I justify my own behavior is, uh, let's say, like, the last trip I, I took, I went to um, Shenzhen, China, and I was able to see how they electrified their whole city. They have an amazing subway system. They opened up, um, like, eight new subway lines within the span of, like, a few months in, like, 2012 or something, and they just, it's, it's beautiful. It's like a shop. It's, it's pristine. It's clean. Um, you walk down the street. It seems like half the cars are electric. You don't even hear them. Coming up behind you on the sidewalk, there's like Scary. someone on a Vespa, an electric Vespa. Um, yeah, it is kind of like eerily quiet, but it's also kind of nice. Like you could be by a busy boulevard and you could hear birds chirping because you don't hear the traffic. There's no noise pollution as well. Or air pollution. It's actually like pretty clean city for industrial china yeah you know there's no there's not the smog that you see in shanghai or beijing so like in that it's a re, it's almost like a research trip and i get to like bring that information back to like being a planner in my work and i'm transportation i'm affecting transportation planners you know i sat in on on a meeting i had for the, this uh this transit project that i was telling you about before and i mentioned my trip to shenzhen and the electric cars and they're saying that's interesting so planting little seeds so like that's kind of my offset. I didn't pay three hundred dollars to a solar panel or a research company because that's that was the um, the the price on my uh, negative externality right of pollution. But I tried to you know offset that with some knowledge I brought back. That's one way I justify it. The other way I justify it, and then I'll give you a chance to speak because you are my guest after all. Um, is that there's always going to be some CO2 emissions in the world, or as long as people exist, as long as human beings are living and exhaling air, there are going to be CO2 emissions. There's going to be carbon generated from the earth and it's, and, and people. Um, so whether it's, respiration or whether it's airplanes there's going to be some co2 you know the key is creating enough um creating enough whatever trees that kind of can retransform that co2 and back into oxygen to maintain a, a healthy balance and i don't know if there's geo going to have to be geo, some kind of geoengineering in the, in the future uh, that's another slightly another topic but there's always going to be some co2 emissions and travel there's so many benefits to travel, at like at bringing people together and you know increasing kind of tolerance and, and mutual understanding. Um, and the, there's there's beauty that's experienced when when cultures interact for sure. Um, so I don't know that you can totally kill that. There's always going to be some CO2 emissions, and maybe it's worth it to reserve some of those emissions for. Or, you know, transoceanic travel. It's possible, yeah. You know, I I think that transportation and ease of access to 
global markets and other countries and even people next door has increased remarkably in recent years. And that in part has really led to a very quick increase in wealth across the globe. Uh, Extreme poverty has decreased globally. And uh, as job mobility and personal mobility increase, it gives the people a lot more options. Right. We're we're in too deep. Like people expect the ability to to travel now. Yeah. Now, what people don't expect is, um, you know, companies flying every day. Yeah. Right. And shipping stuff every day. That might be a little extreme. And there are definitely if like if we're going to keep travel as a as a viable option, we got to reduce CO2 emissions somehow. So whether so like it, if it's that kind of daily freight um, that has to be decreased, that's one option. Another, the second part of this that I, I thought a lot on my bus mega bus home from midnight to two a.m. last night uh, when you had, when I was reading these articles, delirious. <coughs> Excuse me. Is the need for um, a massive high speed rail connections? Yeah. So that. If we just could envision this for a second, right? Just politics aside, we reserve um, air travel, which has to emit CO two, um, to kind of to crossing the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean to those kind of longer flights. But then the shorter flights, like say say like New York to Chicago, even or something like that, high speed rail. Europe, just high-speed rail. I think Europe has that already. Um, and you, you, you make it cheap, right? You've, you fund it. You invest in it. You create, you create jobs in high-speed rail, high-speed electrified rail, kind of connecting the land and all the cities on, on the land. And then, you, uh, you know, if you need to fly from New York to Paris, you can, that's a flight. You could you could still do that. There's emissions reserved for that. Um, what are your thoughts on on that idea, Mister Trans Transit Guru? I don't know if I'm a transit guru, but that's certainly one way to do it. I believe, you know, if you can, and unfortunately this isn't popular, but planes are getting more fuel efficient, and even though you can't really remove yourself from jet fuel because of its energy density. Uh, you can still put more people on a plane and make planes more fuel efficient. So your emissions per passenger would actually drop. Of course, that means maybe less flights per day with a larger, more cramped airplane. But, you know, if you got to do what you got to do. And an alternative would be to just increase the price of plane tickets uh, to account for either a carbon tax that would help people become more conscious of what they're doing with their spending. But yeah, once you land, I believe there's a huge opportunity that's been missed, but you see it's starting to develop for high-speed rail, especially in yeah. the United States. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe the the surcharge, that carbon offset that we talk about, those the increased plane prices can go into funding this high-speed rail. Yeah, there is a need for new funding sources. And high-speed rail is as good a use for that money as I can think of. Yeah. I know China is, is high-speed rail there is, is incredible. Um, when I was in Shanghai, I was fortunate enough to – I rode the Maglev just for fun. It connects um, downtown 
uh, Shanghai to the, the airport, the new airport in Pudong, and it's a magnet train. Pretty cool. So for like you talk about like electricity being more efficient, this is this is a magnet. So it's essentially it's a basically a bobsled. And the track, yeah. it's, it's all elevated. It's not underground. It's all, ele- it's all elevated, and it goes 120 miles an hour. That's quick. Yeah, or like 300 kilometers an hour or something. It's fast, and it feels fast. And you look outside, and you're zooming. But it's also, it's really nice. And it, when it turns, the whole train tilts. It's truly like a bobsled. Yeah. That's, and the track, like it's not on rails. It was incredible. It's it's expensive. It was exp- even in China. It was about I think twelve dollars to ride um, there and back. Uh, twelve dollars. Twelve U.S. dollars, the equivalent of that in in Chinese. So you know how much Amtrak is? <laughs> <laughs> Amtrak, yeah. I mean, I, regardless, I, continue. Regardless, but it was a really interesting experience because th- this is possible with 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 investment. Yes. The technology is there. It's there. And I've ridden the... Have you been to Asia, Mike? I have not. You got to go to Asia. I'm keeping my global carbon footprint as tight as possible. But for research purposes, my friend. And uh, and look, if, if you're not on that airline seat, someone else will be. You know, that plane's flying regardless. Okay. <laughs> All right. No, no flights being canceled because you're not going to Tokyo. Speaking of Tokyo, the Shinkansen in... Japan is amazing. It's just, it's so fast. Oh my God. Look, other countries have putting in, been They've putting in it. the investment where the United States has not. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a public policy issue where, you know, yeah. everyone can agree on investing in infrastructure, but in the United States, no one wants to pay for it. And no one can agree on what type of infrastructure should be invested in. That's why China is leading the 21st century. I alluded to it before, but they, their plans, they're, they're recreating the Silk Road, right? They're, they're connect. China is connecting freaking um, Beijing to Lagos. That's essentially. A, a good distance. And to, to, to freaking Sevilla, you know, and like in London. Like, there are. China is like leading the push about just like connecting Asia to to Europe by high speed and, and in Africa. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's happening. Europe and Asia have definitely pulled ahead of us in terms of passenger train capability, speed, capacity, network. Uh, United States, to be fair, and to give us a little a little flag to wave around is we have a fantastic freight railroad network. We have mm. pretty much the best in the world yeah. uh, in terms of capacity, network, size, scope, and scale. You know, and hmm. that's something that we do use here. And that is, uh, it's not electrified, but the amount of tonnage that you can move per mile per gallon of diesel fuel is fantastic. And it really is a, a more sustainable option for shipping if you can, you know, wait an extra day or two over your Amazon Prime two day delivery, one day delivery now. I have a question, Mike. So the freight routes. They also kind of follow interurban routes, right? Because that's where the markets are. Yes, there's overlap in some places. So, yeah. what's the issue with just as a pilot project about attaching a car or two for passengers to these freight trains? Um, isn't that, that's a, that's <laughs> I mean, this is some wild, wild west stuff. Yeah, but why not? 
in in general it 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 depends on where the capacity is you know a lot of these freight networks they run on maybe what used to be a passenger rail line because back before amtrak was created and consolidated passenger service for railroads in the united states all these freight railroads actually had their own sort of passenger arm that used to move people around the country we, we talk about multimodal yeah what about like a mixed train like the train it's carrying freight and it's carrying people and look at times of like low passenger demand say like you could just have more freight cars at times of like high passenger demand you have more passenger cars in an optimal network that would be fantastic <laughs> that's what we're envisioning here though right? in an optimal network optimal. where you can without friction swap in passenger cars for freight cars without worrying about speed or timing with everything works yeah that's a fantastic option i think that would be really and, cool and it's probably actually more feasible in a way than just developing a whole separate parallel massive high-speed rail system right to use those kind of, that kind of existing right of way the issue is what you're competing on is is time though you know the freight is not high speed uh in fact it can be very slow there's bottlenecks around chicago that add days to delivery service for freight and mm-hmm. so depending on where you are fine i got a better idea then all right so the issue with the Hyperloop and different massive high-speed rail Hyperloop projects. Now. No, it's it's always about right-of-ways, right? It's yeah, always right-of-ways not, not in my backyard. Most difficult right. portion. So I just talked about the maglev being an elevated bobsled. Yeah. Right? So where there's and obviously it's more expensive to be elevated, but in kind of areas where there's people living, like could you just have a the passenger high-speed route? elevated over the freight right away i don't see why not that's like because that's theoretically right away that you have theoretically you can that's a theoretically that's a good idea and then you don't have to worry about as many people complaining because they already have a freight train in their backyard and and a high-speed train would be cleaner and quieter potentially yeah See, we're getting somewhere, Mike. Yeah. This is this is a fruitful this is conversation. Outside, outside of the box. Yeah. This is a fruitful conversation, man. Um all right, once again, thanks to our, our sponsor, Roland Cases. Um just, you know, the most rocking suitcases on, on wheels. Mike, when you travel, do you uh use a, a backpack or are you a backpacker or are you a rolling cases guy? Rolling cases. Rolling cases. Me too. Me too. I uh you know, I actually I've always been a backpack guy, so I had my rolling cases, suitcase, personally customized with straps, so I have that option. All right. Why not keep all doors open? Why not? You know, it's like mixing freight and passenger rail on the same right of way, either way. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, uh, do, do you have any more thoughts on this this dilemma? Oh, let, let's talk about this. Let's talk about... So part of the reason I like flying now and that I I've, have been traveling and another justification is that is the fear of uh, traveling being a lot more restricted in the future. Because these, these scenarios that we're talking about, because of politics, because of local, national, global politics at every scale, um, and the cooperation it takes... I'm not, you know, I'm not naive about 
not I'm not naively optimistic about it. You know, I'm I'm hopeful, but I'm not being naive about it. So like, it's also possible, very possible that never happens, and that really just air travel just gets restricted. So by that token, don't you want to see the world before travel just goes way up in price? I mean, why can't we all just be happy in our own little backyard? We can, but happiness isn't everything, you know? Fair. (laughs) If you're happy all the time, happiness is relative, right? So if you're happy all the time, you're really just content all the time. You need the highs and lows to understand happiness. You know, I I don't think that, I think the, the sort of the cat is out of the box with this, you know, it, we've opened up the world to so much travel and connections that it's going to be impossible to sort of recontain. And while airline travel may decrease, it would be substituted with something else. You know, if someone said we can't fly on a plane burning jet fuel anymore, you would have someone develop a technology that would be expensive at first, but would most likely decrease with scale that would allow you to travel without jet fuel, mm-hmm. you know, and it's right. going to take an action like that to really limit it in. And that may be jet fuel prices just simply going up, which yeah. will happen in the long term. And that might be, that's might be why it's, that's more realistic than a high speed rail system, because as high speed, a high speed rail system is, it's lower speed than, an air system. I mean, you have huge benefits in competition over certain mileages. High-speed rail makes a lot of sense given that airports have security you have to go through. They tell you to get there an hour and a half, two hours before your flight, all that stuff. There's the, You have to drive to the airport, you have to park, check your bags, all of this stuff, and then do the reverse of that when you actually get where you're going. And airports aren't located downtown. No one wants to have a jetliner coming in and landing right. downtown. Uh, obviously, there are exceptions to that, but airpl- airports have t- typically been relegated to land outside of the city center uh, and away from populations. Question. Yeah. Can hot air balloons and blimps be electrified? Are those easier to electrify than airplanes? I would say this is just off, off the top of my head that hot air balloons would be very difficult to electrify (laughs) because they currently rely on some sort of gas burner to heat the air inside the balloon. And you'd have to replace that with something like a hairdryer, which has a very high wattage and would pull a lot of power from a battery. So you have a giant hairdryer going like you, you You would have to have a battery when you were with, I guess. Yeah. But when you remember when you were a kid and you probably had a plastic bag and you'd Mm. blow it up with a hairdryer and it would go float up in the air. It's like that. Yeah. Except hairdryers pull a lot of electricity. Right. You need a big battery, a big heavy battery that might bring down the air balloon. Yeah, but I mean a blimp, like once hypothetically, once it's full of whatever buoyancy gas you're going to put in it, uh, could very easily run on battery. Yeah. And so here's here's another idea. May I? Yeah. No, please indulge. The only the thing about blimps though, like for transatlantic voyages, like there's there's some there's some dank heavy hurricanes in the middle of the pacific you know like it's hard to predict the weather there i feel like pacific hurricanes yeah and the atlantic hurricanes just like crossing the ocean at night you know it's a little different but here but here's something but planes can run on battery as well but 
maybe not as far as they as they currently do and as efficiently. So he, here's an interesting idea. Bear with me. What if we just set up like artificial, a few artificial islands in the ocean, right? Not enough to really change anything about the oceans themselves, but we have like a few artificial like landing strips in the ocean for, for planes. So that like <laughs> planes that are powered by electricity, you could fly maybe halfway across the Atlantic, completely electricity powered, refuel, and then go, go over again. This is, uh, we've done this before, uh, back when flight was sort of just taking off commercially and you were trying to fly across the Pacific, you would stop in places like Hawaii or Guam where you would refuel your plane and then continue on to wherever you were going. Right. And they're just refueled by a bunch of offshore turbines that are hooked up to that artificial landing strip. They're very real landing strip. There is an airport in Guam you can fly to. (laughs) Yeah. So this could happen. Yeah. It, it's a potential option, yeah. So ele- electrifying planes is possible for short flights. I think that you can do it for any length of flight. It just is a matter of battery technology, um, sort of efficiency in airplane design. And obviously I'm not an aeronautical engineer or a battery engineer, but I don't see a reason why it can't be done if the technology can be developed. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Right now, batteries lack a lot of that sort of power density that over an extended period of time that you'd be you'd need to be able to fly an airplane of considerable size with a considerable amount of people. Typically, electrified airplanes that exist today carry two people, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe less. Yeah, yeah. And they have to be really lightweight. So okay. you can't bring your your suitcase with you. Okay, so we'll stick to carbon emissions for transatlantic and trans-pacific voyages and massive high-speed rail system um, built over the right-of-ways of existing freight lines um, for for the uh, isn't that something the uh, the domestic inner city passenger transportation um, all right so Mike I had a question I want to ask you okay shoot this is something that I'm calling the the essential dilemma of existence okay that's a big big name yeah no it's i mean it's not a it's it's a it's not an important question or anything but it's the essential dilemma of existence all right ready for it okay so given the the future of you know climate change and you know human causing etc 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 if you had the choice to have humanity survive and thrive you know like it is now say or even better, while 99% of wild species die, right? Like, so like dogs still exist because we keep breeding them, right? Maybe cattle keep existing because we keep eating cheeseburgers, right? Corn continues to exist. So not like every other species dies, but most of the, almost like all the species dies, right? No elephants, no otters, none of that stuff. No, No penguins. Would you choose that scenario? Or would you have humanity go extinct instead and have all these other, all the other animals live? It's a very sort of Avengers Endgame, you know. I, I never saw it. Snap. I never saw this movie. The world's population disappears. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I think. I've never seen it. I still haven't seen it. 
But um, yeah, what what is your reaction to that question? You know, uh, I guess I'm at, at such a, a deep existential question. But at the end of the day, um, I think that we need to put us first. Yeah. Uh, really. Yeah. And whatever that takes. And I'm a huge proponent of sort of space exploration. And if we need it, maybe what we need to do is some level of terraforming of our, our geologic engineering, geoengineering. So just to clarify, in this scenario that you're saying where, where we survive, like let's say literally every wild animal. Yeah. Every undomesticated animal dies. Even the raccoons? Even the raccoons. Yeah, they die. So basically it's only animals that we have sort of we it's people it's dogs it's cats um and that's it's such such a tough question it's, it's like and it's like one percent of fish that we yeah. that we farm like shrimp and stuff All it's right. one it's like one percent of you know cows that we feed corn to mm-hmm. you know it's like one percent of every kind of species as you know it you know no no bears of course you know very very few i birds. love bears. maybe no birds no birds man it's gonna be quiet maybe a few parrots i guess a few parrots if you want them <laughs> no i you know it's globally naturally maybe this is selfish but one percent of tree species you know we only have we only grow the trees that we need for for like lumber and and biofuels and stuff yeah that would be a sad planet to live on right a sad planet would you still choose that scenario i would still choose humans yeah Mm. you know maybe we just have to leave the earth and go explore something else but you know Mike, I think I would choose to have humans go extinct. Uh, and how do you want to go out? Um, I think just we go out like the dinosaurs did. You know, like we we left our mark. And hey, you know, we take our chances that another intelligent species can develop on Earth and and discover us. Like, I mean, we we developed in only two million years, which is which is nothing. So we take our chances that we preserve the earth and we leave behind like traces of our, our memory. You know, we've already sent stuff into space and we just, we hope we get discovered. And we just, yeah, because if, if not, if, if the scenario where humans survive but all of their life dies, then we really have, we're way in too deep then because we can't bring those species back. Um, and never say never. <laughs> I mean, but not like naturally, not wild, you know. I don't know. It's tough. It's a tough question. Yeah. It's the essential dilemma of, of existence, you might say. Um, I think we're going to take a quick water break right now. Cool Maybe beans. a coffee break. <laughs> Maybe a little something else break. Um, and then we'll be back. Uh yeah catch you in well i guess five seconds your time because we'll we'll cut out the silence here all right does that sound good perfect and we're back to climate change therapy 
I'm sitting here with my good friend, transit guru, Mike Larson. Mike, how you holding up? It's a, been a marathon. It's been a marathon. It, you know, life's a marathon. It's not, not a sprint, as they say. Mike, I, w- I want to start with a, a segment that, um, that we have that differs from show to show. But on this show, it's a new segment. Okay. It's always a new segment. But I want to talk about some cities that there might be real estate opportunities in for 2050. All right. So <laughs> what, what, what cities are going to be the hot spots? 30 years from where now. do you want to buy something like where, where do yeah, you want just in terms of how climate change will shape the earth uh-huh how is it gonna shape it you're you know your background as a geologist um i would never pretend to be a geologist i, mm, I do yeah. have an undergraduate degree in it but i am by no means an expert okay you're you're more of an expert than 99 percent of people um so here's my thought for example Sea level rise is going to affect a lot of the, the largest, the cities in the world, right? Yeah. So how about, how about Montreal? Montreal, not a coastal city. It's on a river. Okay. Yes. Maybe that river could rise. It's, it's on a big kind of has a harbor lake, sort of a big catchment area for this river. Mm-hmm. Um, but beautiful city that people love. Uh, it's a little cold, but it will get warmer. Yeah. With climate change, um, so what are your thoughts on you know buying some property in Montreal in thirty years? Well, you want to buy it now, right? You want to you want to buy it now and have yeah. it ap- appreciate over thirty years. I don't know if that's the word, but uh, right. So, what do you think about the opportunities there? Are you offering to sell me something? Is that a yes? Yeah, no, I definitely think Montreal would be anywhere that you're moving further away from the equator and further away from the ocean potentially has a possibility. You also have to be like fresh water supply is still important no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. And uh, if there are you know, lakes in Canada. Yeah, but it's really hard to speculate about how clouds and rainwater and precipitation will continue to evolve and move. If it doesn't snow mm-hmm. anymore, large portions of California will become, and Colorado and Wyoming, all these places will become uninhabitable because they rely on snowmelt for a lot of right. water right? Um, coming down from the mountains. And if the mountains aren't getting snow anymore, then there's... The Rocky Mountains. Yeah. Or the Sierra Nevada Mountains. All of them. Yeah. All of the above. If they're not getting snow, a huge amount of fresh water is not entering that system. And even though they might be fine temperature-wise and fine from sea level rise, they just will run out of water. And so uh, for me, it's really hard to speculate. It seems like the further north you go intuitively, at least you're protecting yourself from some element of, you know, heat. Right. The Great Lakes are a huge asset. Potentially, yeah. Fresh water. Yeah. And how how are lakes, how could those be jeopardized with global warming? Once again, if you have a higher temperature, you're going to have more evaporation off the top of the lake Mm. and potentially different climate patterns would prevent uh, precipitation uh, in the surrounding areas, which might starve the lake of Mm. what it needs to continue to be a lake, which is water and increased demand from higher populations for fresh water might also create, uh, 
mm-hmm. more more removal of right. water and for farming farming like definitely. Di- diverting like anything to support yeah. a larger population it's really sad i was um reading recently about what's happening to the rlc yeah in kazakhstan uzbekistan yeah uh, on the border yeah i think that's around where it is um but yeah one of the largest land seas or bodies of water in the, in the world and it shrunk to uh, i mean a, a fraction yeah compared far less than half basically of what it nothing was yeah because um because of the the, so- the soviets or the russians um kind of diverting streams to try to um create more fertile farmland yeah. in and around the the, the basin mm-hmm. um so yeah so that's like a fear of what could happen i suppose to around the great lakes but that would be again more man-made than than uh, as a direct result of of uh climate change i mean it was for a very real reason to try to increase agricultural opportunities you know and with the case of unintended consequences you starved mm-hmm. one of the most significant bodies of water on earth of what it needed and what happens to be just a pretty arid region where there's not a lot of their a lot of other options for it to uh, gain more water from. Yeah. Yeah. I was, and I was in uh, Bolivia about a year and a half ago and the second biggest lake after Lake Titicaca is a lake called Lake Popo. I'm probably pronouncing this incorrectly, but um, on the map, it's a big, big blue spot. Looks like a lake as we, we drove past it in in a bus and completely dried, gone, dried out three years ago. Oh, that's pretty recent. Two to four, something like that. But very recently, so recently that it's still a big blue spot on the Google Maps. You know, and of course, Bolivia's f- most famous tourist destination is the, the Salar de Ujuni, the salt flats that used to be a big sea. That's mm-hmm. why it's all salt now at mm-hmm. the bottom. Um, so, I mean, it happens, but it, the Alto Plano is a very dry place. Uh, no doubt people were diverting water from this lake and now it's totally dry um man so montreal uh detroit it's got a couple late it's right at the this kind of this channel between two mm-hmm. uh, huge lakes freshwater lakes you know detroit which has been you know declining has some building stock and is at a great location uh close to Toronto, close to Chicago. Like, that could be a spot, too. Yeah. Um, you know, it's got nowhere to go but up, right, <laughs> as well. Um, so uh, you want to give me a city? I mean, I'll, I'll just bring up, you had mentioned to me in the past, Anchorage. Yeah. Alaska, uh, can you talk about Anchorage? Uh, Anchorage is, at its heart, a, a coastal city, uh, but it is a, a little bit, or portions of it are a little bit higher than current sea level uh, and i think that it has seen population growth in the past and there's a lot of area around it for it to expand and develop in some ways like it is bordered by state parks and preserved lands but there is i think significant opportunity up there for growth at elevations higher than what the sea level change would be mm-hmm. the concern with with anchorage is is earthquakes yes right yeah that's that, the, that is a problem they've faced recently this past year and is there is there a kind of uh earthquake insurance policy similar to the national flood insurance program 
not at a national level, but you know, you can buy insurance for anything. Hey, I, uh, I sense a startup idea coming. We'll have to beat travelers to it, but yeah, no earthquakes are a huge issue up there. And you see, find that a lot of buildings are in the wake of some devastating ones in the past designed to include some levels of protection against them. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, no place is perfect, but they do have a fertile land and areas to grow crops and potentially, you know, climate change could do them some good. Or not. Like, it's yeah. obviously not ideal. It's not ideal. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, who else has pretty fertile land? Russia. Russia? We're all going to move up there? It's kind of scary, huh? As a side note, have you seen uh, HBO? Sorry to take this no, in a, a left turn, but HBO's sort of drama documentary about Chernobyl. Any of that? No. I Wait, watched the ta- first tell me about it. first tell episode. About it, I I it, I love this turn. <laughs> it's about it's about Chernobyl and sort of the whole incident surrounding the uh, the meltdown of the reactor mm-hmm. um, at the Lenin power plant. And can you give just a brief summary to anyone that might not be completely familiar with this story of Chernobyl? Uh, yeah, sure. So in in the in the past, I believe in the I. I you're once again putting me on the spot. But yes. basically what happened is that there was a nuclear power station in Priapet. I'm pronouncing that wrong, probably, but Ukraine, uh, okay. which is near the city of Chernobyl. And during a... Then a part of the Soviet Union. Then a part of the Soviet Union. During, which is trying to develop nuclear weapons. Which is... Is uh, developing nuclear Developing weapons. nuclear weapons and is wanting to be a leader in nuclear power. Uh, during a safety test on the nuclear reactor, uh, basically an accident occurs that results in a steam explosion in the reactor core and leads to a meltdown of one of the reactors. There are multiple reactors on the site, but only one melted down, releasing a huge amount of radiation into the surrounding community and across Europe and across the globe, resulting in evacuations of, you know, tens of square miles surrounding the site mm-hmm. uh, and long-term effects. People still don't live in the area because of significant radiation and the site of the power plant has been capped with basically a entombed, if you will, with uh, protective covering. Anyway, this is a, uh, a drama sort of documentary, dramatization of what occurred there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's pretty intense. <laughs> it, the one thing I know about Chernobyl is it could have been worse. As bad as it was, it couldn't. It, it couldn't. It could have been worse, right? Like, so I was listening to it. It was a Noam Chomsky speech, and he was talking about Chernobyl, and he was saying how when you know whatever it was that broke, the peop, the operators there um, had a decision to make. Like they could kind of dive in there and sort of fix the latch or whatever they they could mm-hmm. like fix the thing but they knew that they could be exposed mm-hmm. and they ended up deciding to go in and fixing it and they they like fixed it to just like stop to stop it from getting worse than it, it was already going to be yeah um and then they died of radiation poisoning like months later mm-hmm. but they're they're like unsung heroes of chernobyl yeah no it's Everything that occurred there is pretty intense, and I, I agree with you. It could have been a lot worse. So you, you recommend this series? 
based off the first episode that I watched, I do. It was <laughs> like, pretty intense. It's, it's on Netflix or HBO? It's on HBO. Yeah. And like a lot of dramas have some sort of comedic relief. No, this is just straight ramping up drama and intensity. Straight just dark. Up and up drama. and up drama. Anyway, back to the normally scheduled programming. <laughs> Anchorage, Alaska, definitely my vote as a place you'd want to move. Okay. Any other cities you want to talk about as places you might want to, that could be, you know, the next sort of, you know, epic cities of the next era. Like, let's say in the 19, you know, we had Rome in the year zero, right? Mm -hmm. Then we had Constantinople in the year 350. Mm -hmm. And then we had Florence in the year 1490. I don't know. And then we had our 1550, whatever. The Renaissance, mm-hmm. you know, and then we had, uh, you know, London in 1650. And then we had Paris in, well, uh, in the Napoleonic eras or something. I don't know. And then we had, you know what I'm talking about? So, like, yeah, what's the, the, what's the next, city. like, great city? Yeah, the like, great global city. Man, that's a big question. It's because a lot of the ones you might think of today are coastal. Yeah. Like Tokyo, right? Coastal Shanghai, Hong Kong, coastal Beijing. I mean, there's coastal. a potential that it might occur before it's actually affected by some level of climate change. You know, yes. what might it be Beijing? Right. Which you could argue is already yeah. the center. Yeah. In the next 10 years, maybe that blows up in a way that we don't see now with populations moving there becomes the economic center i know i saw an article that new york had just reclaimed its title as the economic center of the world uh and it bounced around i guess to london i have to say uh so i've been to beijing yeah pretty cool city um i did make the mistake of going there during the chinese new year so it was not operating as it normally did it was very empty at times it felt like mm-hmm. um but also you know, very crowded because it's beijing after all there's yeah. always going to be people in beijing yeah um but even more recently i alluded to flying to shenzhen i flew in and out of beijing mm-hmm. um and one of my flights was during the day so i and i had a window seat so i flew over beijing it looks unlike any other city i've seen from the sky there's kind of massive developments. There's all, it just like looks like little square blocks and everything is kind of uniform sort of, you, you can just tell like there's like a different architect developed this kind of um, 10 acre plot. And then this architect developed this other 10 acre plot, almost like in the U S how you have these square patches of farmland when you fly over. Yeah. The Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. In, in like around Beijing, it's like these square patches of like developmental zones. It's very, very odd. So and it's very orderly. There's just so much order to it. Um, and, you know, you think of old China and you think of the little hutongs. It's, it's just, it's bizarre. I, I don't know how else to explain it, but it's, it's bizarre. It's another reason to fly. You get a different perspective looking down on cities. And that's always, to me, has been the coolest thing, looking at landscapes. Yeah. And city, you can tell how cities evolve by looking looking from above, where yeah. an old wall was perhaps a sort of sort of 
protective measure that's since been taken down, but it's still like a gash across the city where no develops occur development hey. has occurred. Hey, here's a, here's a relevant one. I flew into over Memorial Day weekend. I flew into Miami during the day. We flew over the Everglades. Yeah, and I saw how the El- Everglades transitioned pretty abruptly into Miami. Yeah, it just they just end. And the, the whole all the Everglades, it's so it's so flat, and it's basically it's sporadically land and just like flooded land because it's flooding from from the ground from the limestone Mm -hmm. and you just see like patches of water that are like kind of closed off and then there's a highway just coming across like a waterway and it it doesn't make sense either it's almost as bizarre as flying over beijing in a Mm -hmm. way and then you just like see this like swamp and then all of a sudden you just like see a bunch of towers and there's no elevation change it just, yeah, just it suddenly wild. a city. Yeah, just suddenly a city, and and a city that's very like as much as much space for parking lots as for buildings. Mm-hmm. It's like build, it's like building and parking lot. There's, it's not like a, it's not like you're flying over like a, a dense village that has developed over like a long period of time. You know, like it just seems like well, someone just put this here, <laughs> and someone planned this. Um, yeah, it's wild. But it's warm. It is warm. The weather's nice. People like that right now. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, people like that. Um, so I do want to talk to you about this this idea I had. Okay. You know, I mentioned we were in an energy class. Yes. It's called Ideas for Energy Policy. It was heavy on ideas. A lot, a lot of ideas. A lot of good ideas, a lot of bad ideas. But... Humanity has been after perpetual motion machines for quite some time. <laughs> because perpetual motion machines, unlike like a windmill, they don't rely on any external forces outside the machines to generate perpetual energy, which would, could generate perpetual electricity, which would solve climate change. <laughs> Let's say. Except, for air, except your, for air travel. Get rid of your podcast. <laughs> Yeah, that's fine. I'm I'm down with that. I would gladly trade in my podcast for, the, for the future of the human race. Um, eh, you know, maybe a, yeah. Uh, anyway. So my idea. So my idea. Uh, a perpetual motion machine. Think about a giant pendulum, right? A giant string with a a big weighted ball at the end, right? Okay. If you lift it up, and you dropped it. And then it would go, it would, it could motion, it could oscillate right back and forth. And maybe somehow through a combination of mechanics, right, uh, rotate a magnetic coil and create electricity that way. Of course, it would lose some energy due to friction or heat. So this isn't a perpetual motion machine. But what if you had somebody pushing it like a swing from, from the top? And so, like, every time the magnet would go, back you just have someone pushing it to like reclaim the energy from heat and that way the energy is being produced by a human worker who's getting paid for his duty you know maybe he's getting paid well you know and he's 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 pushing it back and forth right this isn't s- slavery he's getting paid he's, vo- he's voluntarily signing up for this this job hey, he's getting a workout and you know maybe maybe people are just going on 15 minute shifts it depends how how tiring it is, right? Um, 
but the point is you harness the power of people to create perpetual motion machines. People are the missing component to a complete perpetual motion system. What are your thoughts on that? And if it's not a pendulum, it could be something else, right? Like it could be a, it could just simply be a coil that maybe you set up with a pulley system and then there's many different configurations for perpetual motion, but they always fail because of a loss of heat. But what if you just have a person somehow co- uh, compensating for that loss of heat with a push or a pull? What are your, what are your thoughts on, on, on human labor completing this elusive invention? Does anyone actually want to do that? <laughs> I mean, would you take $30 an hour to push a swing all day? I mean, as appealing as that sounds, I... You could listen to music while you do it. You know, you listen to a, this podcast. Yeah, no, I could listen to this podcast. You get... could take breaks. You could, we could rotate to like a tag team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, you know, wouldn't... Having a perpetual motion machine, wouldn't that be the holy grail of everything? Yes. Yeah. And... Why, and why is it not doable? Like, let's say you sat on a swing set and I pushed you. I could push you all day. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you to a certain extent. I. Where does that extent end, Mike? <laughs> I, well, I'm by no means an engineer. But I would be worried about the friction caused by transitioning that movement to electricity. You could push a little harder. Potentially, but then you got to feed this person. You got to yeah, pay but you this gotta person. Feed every person. You got. I I eat whether you know you eat whether you're pushing or whether you're sitting down at a, a desk. And it, the per, the people go on shifts. He's not pushing all day. He's not like locked in a cage. At what know, with point does this become the Matrix, where we're just all a bunch of humans trying to make power? You know, like we're not actually living. We're just trying to. We're basically batteries. No, but it doesn't have to be that extreme because mechanics are still doing a lot of the work, right? Gravity is still doing a lot of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much people you would actually need for it. Like right now we are manual labor. It takes manual labor to operate a coal plant, to operate a nuclear plant, right? Any kind of energy system create takes manual labor. So a perpetual motion... Uh, generating uh, system would also take manual labor. But instead of sending people to the coal mines where there's all these health effects, you send them to like a really you know, climate controlled environment. It's a comfortable, maybe it's an open floor office environment. You know, there's amenities, there's vending machines, there's a pool table, right? A little whiskey bar. And they just like, you just push a swing for 15 minutes at a time and then. You know, your partner comes and relieves you, and then you come back strong and, you know, rehydrated, and you push a little more, and you get you get paid. Well, I think you would make some power. I, for me, like, it's such a difficult question, not knowing any of the specs. Like, potentially, yeah, you're making power of some sort. Uh, I would want to know how, how much you're actually making. And that's the big question. But any idea that gets closer to doing something that uh, minimizes 
you know, outputs of CO2 or negative effects after watching Chernobyl. It's kind of scary thinking about nuclear power. I know that mm-hmm. it should be safe and it functionally is safe, but, you know, it's hard seeing how bad that was. You know, anything that gets away from a power source that has some level of systemic issue or fear or a negative side effect is a good thing. So you're into this idea? Potentially, yeah. I don't mean to have it. <laughs> ah, I love it, man. Everything to have sort of a qualifier with it. Dude, Mike from the MTA is into the perpetual motion plus plus uh, <laughs> plus manpower idea. That's that's open mindedness. That's liberalism at its finest. Let me know when you have a uh, test model ready to go. <laughs> All right, Mike. Uh, is there is there anything else on the agenda? Anything you want to promote? Any any books coming out? Any new uh, any new stand up specials? Ah, I wish I had a stand up special. I have some great stories to tell. Don't ask me about my great stories. <laughs> uh, I'm yeah, sure. There's one more thing I'd like to talk about briefly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd like to talk about cruise ships. Let's do that. All right. Briefly, like put four minutes on the clock. Okay. Uh, So at the bottom of that article, it talked about how cruises aren't any better really than, you know, an airplane and how air quality on a cruise ship is often worse than what it is in major cities because all these cruise Mm -hmm. ships are burning what is essentially bunker fuel, like the lowest grade oil possible. And even some of the scrubbing techniques it's just dumping waste into the ocean yeah 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 eventually you're you're filtering through water or something and that gets cycled into the ocean and so you're not really removing anything um but greater than that is it's moving all these people around in mass from city to city and just dumping people in these small little port towns and this is going to take another turn because you probably thought i was going to talk about like fuel efficiency in that but i thought you were going to talk about putting windmills on ships windmills on ships yeah there you go no i i want to talk about tourist impact themselves on places okay yeah so you know you've been to new york city where it's been impossible to walk down a block because there's so many people on it yeah you know i don't know if you've been to the statue of liberty um i haven't because i can see it from my office and i see passenger ships just crowded with people like yeah flesh to flesh human wall and so when does a place lose its character if it has too many tourists are there too many tourists are tourists a good thing you know we had a cook ariel mm-hmm. on this podcast uh, a couple episodes ago and i asked him about venice he had recently gone to venice and he yeah. was for the first time and he was you know, really underwhelmed because there were just tourists everywhere mm-hmm. and the canals just like, smelled like sewers and there are no, there are no Italians there anymore. No, where, where's the Venetians and the gondoliers are basically just like, as opposed to kind of hosts, mm-hmm. they're, they're hustlers. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, that Venice has had lost its character that way. There's actually a great movie, and this isn't really a new phenomenon. I mean, it definitely has been exacerbated, but for the the, the class at, at Penn, I took um, phenomenologies of, of coastal sea level rise. Um, we watched the document, uh, not the, the film, Death in Venice, based on the Thomas Mann novella, 
um, and it was a movie from the 70s. I thought it was a hilarious movie, but it's about a, a guy who suffers a mental breakdown and goes to Venice for a vacation. And in Venice, it's just like a bunch of tourists and there's there's things going on. And um, it talks about the effects of tourists on Venice even then. Um, so that city has been affected. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I was in, in Rome a couple... A little, uh, a few years ago, and you know, everyone's trying to sell me roses on the street. I don't know. I don't know. What, what, you answer your own question here. Oh, great! Turn it back around on me. Yeah. You know, I think that tourism is a huge industry boost. A lot of people make a lot of money off, and it can help uh, help be a huge economic boost to a lot of smaller communities it's good for cross-country cultural understanding yeah up until a certain point where you you know the tourists drown out what it means to be a local in a place yeah so what do you do about it maybe you do higher taxes on things tourists use maybe there's a higher tax on on hotel rooms Let's talk about in downtown Philadelphia, an old city. Yeah. Right. There's always tons of tourists around. Yeah. Independence Liberty Hall, Bell, yeah. taking pictures of Liberty Bell. Um, not a lot. Of, not a lot of locals use that space. It's a huge space that was raised during urban renewal. Um, you know, taken away from locals for tourists, and they just opened a new. I don't know if you've been. The Bors Building is yeah. a big, expensive food court, right on. Independence, the the mall, mm-hmm. totally <coughs> sorry, catered for tourists. Yeah, pretty much yeah. expensive. So locals aren't going to eat there for lunch. Maybe maybe some of the more wealthy ones will that can afford it. But it's mostly for tourists that are looking to splurge on a, on a nice environment and a nice uh, setting, um, you know, convenient touristy location. And you know, some people argue against the use of that building, saying it's expensive. It's not for Philadelphians. It's for tourists. But maybe that's that's the point. And it's gonna, it's local Philadelphia businesses. First of all, are setting up shop there, and second of all, that money that the tourists are spending, the sales tax is going to be filtered back into the economy. So, like, maybe it's okay to have a building for tourists that that money can be circulated back into the economy. Definitely. Yeah. As long as it fits within the framework of the city. Yeah. So. Is that our four minutes? That might be our four minutes, Mike. So it, it's been a pleasure. I think this has been a great success. I had high expectations for this one because you're, you're the biggest expert I've had on this, this pod. And I think we, we got somewhere. By no means am I the biggest expert. <laughs> I think we've made waves. Uh, you can read, uh, Mike's article on Block Radius. Um, it's not coming down anytime soon. It's been up for a little while now. It's about uh, batteries, uh, batteries and, and uh, transit, mm-hmm. uh, particularly around New York City. Check it out. Um, thanks for tuning in, guys. Have a great day. Today's Father's Day, actually. So happy Father's Day to everyone out there, all you dads. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you later. Thanks for tuning in. All right.